today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to another episode of What's the Score? Before we get to the program for today, I wanted to mention that if you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a larger part of the show. I've started a program where listeners can support our efforts through monthly contributions and in turn get some goodies and perks with that. Now, if you want more information, you can visit our Facebook page for details or you can go to www.patreon.com slash what's the score. Now, what's the score is all one word. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash what's the score and you can learn more. The contributions are very small, but they help offset uh, some of the costs that we've uh, incurred, as well as, as I like to say, leaving a little tip in the tip jar, if you'd be so kind. Now, first of all, the the show will always be free to listen to, so I want you to be rest assured of that. But I I do want to reward dedicated listeners, and also, quite frankly, just get a little bit of money for my effort. So if you're able to and you're willing, I'd really be grateful. That's patreon.com slash what's the score. Patreon.com slash what's the score. Thanks very much. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. He's had a wide variety of experience in filmmaking. As a director, he's won several awards for his short films, including films like uh, Degrees and The Fast Lane. As an editor, his work with uh, directing legend Sidney Fury is noteworthy, and it really shows that he, this guy has worked with some of the finest people in the business. Uh, his roles in film are a laundry list of things he's been directing an editor writer producer director of photography and that's just a few of his roles in films i think the only things he hasn't done is is probably acting in uh, craft services <laughs> the only thing uh, uh left to say on this too is that he uh he also produced a series of documentaries on film scores and composers for an organization many of our listeners are familiar with and that being film score monthly online so he's obviously well-positioned to really talk about the subject of film scores today. So I hope all of you will join me in welcoming Saul Pincus to the program. Hi, Saul. Hey there. How are you, Frank? I'm Thanks good. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, my pleasure. I, you know, I, when I started to learn a little bit about your background, 
uh, I, I thought to myself it'd be a, a perfect guest for this program. And I'm trying to remember how how did we connect? Was it because we were on a, 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 a Zoom meeting with other film score people, or was that where it was? Yeah, that was. Uh, we were all we were. I think we were all very bored because this is being done <laughs> during the uh, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic right. uh, sort of lockdown, and we're and and so. Uh, uh, Stephen Wilston, I think, who uh, right. organized it, and uh, yeah, and we spotted ourselves there, and uh, and here we are. Okay, well, excellent. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't. Uh, I thought that was where it happened. Um, as we usually do with all of our guests, we kind of like to learn a little bit more about about our guests um, in terms of uh, you know where they where they grew up, family, things outside of music or film that uh, might be of interest for us to know. So if you would maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I was born in Montreal, Canada, uh, where I spent the first 25 years of my life. And the second 25 years of my life, pretty much, uh, I've lived in Toronto, Canada, which is about uh, uh, five or so hours down the highway from right. Montreal. Uh, and uh, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, I grew up in a city that was multilingual and very multicultural uh, and uh, more in tune with Europe. Uh, than certainly the rest of Canada or mm. certainly North America. So I had a lot of uh, very interesting film influences when I was a kid. I became very enamored of movies. I started making short films when I was nine, uh, Started uh, made my first uh, wow. scripted short when I was 11, <laughs> uh, spent my teen years. This is back when we shot you know things on film and they were super eight. And, and I was lucky enough that the camera that, that I was gotten uh, when I, the camera that, that was given to me when I was nine was actually a sound camera. Oh, wow. Uh, so I was able to do, uh, you know, to work with dialogue or to work with sound effects and music early on. And funny story there, my, my dad, when he, um, actually the way things started was that we came out of the closing counters the third time kind, and I was a seven. Uh, and I asked him how, how do they do all this stuff? And he said, well, trick photography, referring to the visual <laughs> effects and, so, you know, maybe the library has a book about that. And oh. uh, and so I went off and read about it. And uh, and later that summer, he took me to uh, summer of 78, took me to a camera shop. And, 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 you know, I saw these Super 8 cameras. And, of course, my eyes were wide. And I said, you know, could I, could I get one of these? And he said, sure you can. Next <laughs> summer, <laughs> if you're still interested, we'll come back and get it. Uh, and I spent the entire year being, you know, uh, just really at every opportunity that I spent with him, uh, just bugging him uh, over and over again. Finally had to wait, though, till August of the following summer. And we picked it up. I <laughs> uh, went away for a couple of days and shot some home movies. But, yeah, that became a, a sort of a, a obsession of mine. Um, and, I, you know, I, you know, I didn't ahead. even know. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't even know that Super 8 had an, uh, an audio capability. So that's that's kind of new for me to learn. Magnet, magnetic sound. Yeah. OK. Um, yeah. And it was very, very crude. Um, in fact, as I as I started making shorts and I I would get a projector that was a bit better than the first projector I had, I just re-recorded everything because it mm. was it's much better as it just sort of you know, not rely on what you shot. And of course, then to move sound around or anything like that or do overlaps, you'd have to move it on to magnetic film, like to like actual magnetic film stock, which yeah. is like with your big fingers, very hard to deal with this little <laughs> eight millimeter wide thing. Anyway. Yeah, that's what, that's how that went. Well, that's interesting. So you, you actually uh, have gotten into it at a really fascinating time in the history of film, meaning that 
you started out with the original medium, that being film, and then I've seen the transition to digital over the past, what, 20 years or so. So you've uh, you've seen the benefits of both. I've always wondered. Well, you know what? I'm going to save that question for a little bit later. I'm, I, well, sure. I want to make sure and make a note of that. Um, so let's see. You, you've actually written uh, quite an interesting list of, of different uh, – cues that you like from different composers and it's quite a wide variety and i love that and it's not all just present day or golden age it's uh, all across the board let's let's go ahead and get into some of those there was a the first one i thought we would play it comes from a film called the day the earth stood still mm-hmm. and this is uh, interesting enough uh, uh, the cue is the prelude and it's written by you know one of the greatest film composers of all time bernard Herrmann. Now, tell us a little bit, is there a particular reason why that seems to make your list of favorites? Uh, I think because, to me, The Day the Earth Stood Still is a movie that, first of all, I never, I didn't see The Day the Earth Stood Still until I was much older. But mm. its soundscape uh, reminds me a lot of the Twilight Zone era um, mm. and a similar era, similar idea behind what, you know, sort of sonically, we came to know, I mean, as as imprinted on us by Herman, uh, as as a sort of science fiction sound uh, from that era. And so it's very emblematic of that to me. Um, okay. and, uh, uh, and of course, I, I love the film and I love the message of the film. Um, but uh, but the music itself, in a way, summarizes uh, many of my experiences watching them track and retrack. Uh, the same cues, uh, not this, not from that film, but but uh, same Herman stuff uh, all over uh, the Twilight Zone series. Uh, it yeah. comes from the same galaxy uh, yeah. in my mind, you know, filmmaking wise. Sure. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is again from the the day the Earth stood still. The the cue is called uh, Prelude, and it's written by the maestro Bernard Herman. Thank you. 
the question I was going to say for later, I, I because you, you because you have worked in this industry at a really interesting time when it was going through the transition. Mm-hmm. I, I always hear these the, the so-called purists that will say, oh, it's better on film. You'll never hear film trying to duplicate digital, but of course, digital tries to duplicate film. It, for a, for a neophyte like me that doesn't really understand, what uh, it, in your view is there one that's superior to the other, or or what are the differences that, between shooting on film and editing and versus digital? Well, I mean, it depends. First of all, superior or or inferior. I mean, they each do things. I mean, digital is a very generic term, of course. You know, yeah. to describe. I mean, we talk about sort of video capture, or the, or the, or, or or you know that versus photochemical capture. Okay. I think the difference is really depends on what you're using it for. Um, I think that there are great advantages to use each medium. Uh, kind of the way it was intended to be used uh, in a kind of learning situation. Uh, for example, I think almost anybody who's going to learn how to make a film, whether they're learning at home or elsewhere, I wish they had access to, you know, I mean, they do in some film schools make you do this, go through shooting black and white film oh, wow. uh, and process and get it, it gets processed. And all you've got to do is cut it together in a physical way uh, to learn that, an awful lot of brain activity happens um, between the first choice you make to edit something up against something else and the next one, because it takes time to go get, you know, go get the material, mm-hmm. uh, go get the other shot. Um, and uh, so, you know, when you're putting together a film that way, um, you do a lot of thinking about whether or not the next shot is the right shot, whether you're going in the right direction. Um and that results, I think, in a different kind of training and a different kind of discipline. And a, but a useful one to have, uh, because of course, uh, since the mid '90s, we've pretty much been in a in a nonlinear digital world. Uh, and uh, even before that, sort of a hybrid videotape editing world. And and uh, and and it's very easy to to change your mind. And it's very easy to make a lot of choices quickly. And it's very easy to access large amounts of film very quickly mm. um that has its advantages and its disadvantages um one of the disadvantages you'll hear a lot of people say uh, you'll even hear some directors say is that it it brings executives and other people into the room to sit with you uh and try to remake or make changes to what you've done and sometimes they can be helpful but sometimes it just it makes the access a little too a little too great mm-hmm. uh you know, it, it, just from the standpoint of having room to maneuver uh, as a craftsperson. Now, um, you know, it used to be uh, long before I was born, but it used to be in those days of 14 or 16 hour days in the film industry that a director would come in and, and watch a scene that the editor has put together mm-hmm. uh, over the course of a week. And if he wanted some changes, he'd go, he'd leave and come back and go on some trip for five days and come back and watch the same five minutes five days later possibly you know or or even longer if it was an action sequence so yeah. that that autonomy is really helpful because you know other artists have that or other craftspeople i should say have that autonomy and it's useful if you give a film composer an auto- autonomy uh to a certain degree uh you you get a more interesting work um you can bend it and shape it as you go along but you don't have to bend it and shape it from the first moment it's being composed 
similarly with with actors uh you don't want to sit there with an actor who has something to do to to bring to the table uh and completely dominate that at every single turn uh it's okay to direct but you haven't brought them there to uh hopefully you know uh, make them out to be some kind of string puppet yeah uh, yeah what i found interesting in my own experience for a lot of my listeners know that i'm also uh, uh an actor and have had the pleasure of working on a couple of really interesting projects. One of them was the the remake of Magnificent Seven, and mm-hmm. he uh, he shot the entire movie on film. But I can remember having mm-hmm. a conversation at lunch with, with a guy who ended up was going to be the editor, and uh, I forgot how we got there. But basically, you know, I was kind of surprised that he take he would take that film. Again, I I don't know what the right term is, but he would digitize it so to speak, and that was where he was going to edit. Is 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 that normal? I mean, because there are still oh, yeah. a few people that use film, but they usually always still convert it for the editing process to digital. No one cuts on film anymore. Uh, <laughs> no one, no one has cut on film since the mid 1990s. Wow. Uh, in fact, it got it. You can look at a, a curious credit uh, at the end of the film uh, Goldeneye, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Bond film. I think 1995 says so edited on film. Oh wow! At I've never time, noticed that. Yeah, at a time when a lot of other, you know, films were out there, you know, the credits saying edited on av- you've probably Avid Film Composer or Lightworks or uh, some system like that, and 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 that's because they were so proud of having uh, cut it on film. Now the next Bond film was, you know, literally a, uh, you know, chopped liver of uh, fast cuts and cut on Avid, mm-hmm. but they've never looked back. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, that's that's standard. I mean, the digital does offer the best of both worlds when it comes to shooting, like acquisition on film, if you want that look, uh, and bringing it into the digital world. Because one of the things it does that most people don't realize is film has a lot of natural imperfections, like gate weave. It might jiggle just slightly as it's going through the gate, and that makes mm-hmm. it that brings it, you know, or obviously dust or dirt, and obviously, you know, things that you can do is you can stabilize that image. So. Star Wars films, the new batch, were all shot on film. They look really, I mean, mostly shot on film. They they look really great that way. But if you see some of their dailies that sometimes show up in some of the making of stuff, you see a huge difference in uh, in the weave before they've they've docked it. So yeah. best of both worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it's interesting. I appreciate you sharing that because I've always kind of kind of wondered. The um, the next cue you had chosen is a. Uh, this composer is a particular, I guess if I were to name maybe my top two or three composers, this this gentleman would certainly fall on that list. We're talking about Jerry Goldsmith's score for uh, the film Planet of the Apes, and I believe you had uh, chosen a cue called The Kent. Is there, and that Planet of the Apes was a very unusual score, too, as I recall. So what was it that kind of drew you to wanting to include this on your list? I mean, it's, so impo- it's almost impossible for me to pick something from Goldsmith's just uber vast oh yeah right i mean it's like it's like it's just almost impossible to find one thing and that's one but but you know if i think of something that um i always go to and uh and again is very emblematic of a kind of loneliness but also a kind of intellectual loneliness uh Mm -hmm. that, that he was able to uh a sense of humanity he was able to bring across in a lot of his scores. Um, I think of I think of Planet of the Apes being one. I could think of a lot of others, but the, but in terms of that, it's 
you know, it also it also kind of uh, created a, a mini genre as well, not just the not just a way to approach uh, that series of films for other composers who would come on to do others or the series, but but also a certain sense of of I mean, at that period, I would say uh, Goldsmith was about to get into a very folksy kind of thing, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, for a lot of films that no one really saw. But to me, this is a very successful marriage of uh, this at that time. And it reminds me of the very lucky in 1998 to go to Radio City Music Hall and see him perform. Uh, I was in the fifth row. Uh, and uh, sitting right behind Fred Scapisi, the director who did, um, uh, who made Iceman. Uh, hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people were there who'd worked with Goldsmith. Uh, certainly Michael Crichton was there. Um, and uh, it was it was quite an amazing thing because Goldsmith came up and said, you know, we, we try, we're going to do Planet of the Apes, but we didn't have enough mixing bowls because there are mixing bowls, you know, <laughs> using so I went to, so I called up Planet Hollywood down the street and they had, they, they sent them over. And I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's kind of funny that a guy flies all the way to New York and calls <laughs> up Planet Hollywood. I'm sure everyone had mixing bowls, but for some reason that was the place to find them. Yeah. And it's, and I, I wish I had been able to see him in concert, but uh, it was one of the things I liked about him as he was one of the few Hollywood composers out there that I, I think really did do a lot of appearances and they gave a lot of concerts, maybe more so than others. I, I could be wrong on that, but. Well, he was great. I mean, he was great. He was very warm and very self-effacing. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and it was special for me because at that time I was probably really just getting into Goldsmith. It had just been three or four years that I had been listening to his stuff. I came to his stuff later, although there were certain select scores like Star Trek to motion picture that, that were that were his prior to that and poltergeist probably were the two but mm-hmm. but because he also scored a lot of genre films that tended to skew like a uh, first blood or things like that that tended to skew um older uh i uh, uh i i wasn't as familiar with his work um as say john williams so uh yeah it was great though. I mean, to see, I'm really happy we, we got to see him. We did try to, you know, see him at the stage door and stuff like that, but he wasn't going for it. <laughs> well, let's have a listen. This is a, from the score planet of the apes written by Jerry Goldsmith. Thank you. 
We'll get back to our guest here in just a minute. I was curious if you uh, ever find yourself in a position where you like to kind of show off unique items of yours, maybe a, a coffee mug or a T-shirt that's, you know, something that not everybody can get. In our case, because you're listening to the show, I'm guessing it would be nice. I certainly would like it if I could find some kind of a film score mug or T-shirt that I could show off, you know, like pictures of composers and stuff. Oh, wait a minute. That does exist. What you have to do is go visit redbubble.com and search for What's the Score or search for Frank Wilson's Shop. And there you'll find the logo to the program uh, for our podcast. And it's available on mugs, shirts, stickers, and far more, uh, all sorts of items. If you recall, our logo is a film strip with composers' faces uh, on the different frames. So you'll see composers like John Williams, John Barry, Lalo Schifrin, and some others you'll recognize. So if you want to show off your love of film music, this is the perfect way to do it. Visit redbubble.com, that's R-E-D-B-U-B-B-L-E.com, and search for either What's the Score, or um, you can also search for Frank Wilson's Shop. And you can also visit our Red uh, Facebook page and get more information on that as well. So I want to encourage you to check it out. That's redbubble.com redbubble.com search for what's the score you made it kind of clear uh, as to you know what was kind of the genesis for you getting interested in film and those sorts of things but you seem to have a very keen interest and in, in and a keen ear for Film scores and how that works in the movie making process. Was there was there a particular event or a time that got you into film scores and film music? Uh, I was seven years old when Star Wars came out, and mm -hmm. I do believe that was the the low end of the of the age. <laughs> Most people <laughs> who were st struck by that film, uh, you know, uh, were like, so I was really just the right age, um, and. Uh, you know, that was that struck me, but I wasn't necessarily responding to it. I would say the first um, the first instance of film scores in any form were probably Disney musicals um, mm -hmm. that, that I would be taken to or or would see in some form on TV as a kid. Uh, Mary Poppins would probably be something very early on that I heard. But um, but Star Trek, the series, uh, my uh uh, my memory of Star Trek, and which 
came on uh, as a replacement for Bonanza at 7 p.m. on the local <laughs> ABC affiliate yeah. uh, south, south of the Canadian border uh, when I was four. Uh, their first episode, they were showing the series out of order. It was, um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the one where the Enterprise goes in and, um, uh, and discovers a single-celled organism. It looks like a giant fish in the original visual effects uh-huh. uh, version of that. And, uh, you know, that's a series, obviously, that uh, was very expressive and theatrical in terms of its use of music. And, uh, and that's for years. I loved that show. So for years, I, I would listen to that. Probably Superman was the one, though, that, um, put it very center stage for me. I mean, okay. certainly the main the main titles of Superman were like a kind of a slog for a kid. Uh, most people who came back from seeing the film were like, great movie, but you'll fall asleep during the credits, they would tell me. And I was, <laughs> you know, and I didn't fall asleep during the credits, but they were they were kind of long, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't, if you wanted the movie to start. Yeah. Um, but they did put the music front and center. And of course the music is, you know, I mean, in that film, that was the film really probably that made me uh feel like this was something very special and uh and so uh you know it came out i think it was november or december 78 and then um uh i begged begged my mom to take me downtown and we did on a snowy sunny snowy post storm post snowstorm day um and uh picked up the album for an ungodly amount of money of i think it was probably like 14 dollars or something like that which was a lot of money in 1978 for a kid and oh, uh, went back on the bus and uh, it was just kind of, I just remember the whole experience very well. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. You, um, you picked a, as another one on your list, um, someone whose work I'm not as familiar with. And I almost feel bad for saying that because he obviously was a giant, particularly in the golden age. This, the film we're going to be listening to is, a uh, is El Cid. Uh, Rosa, I think is the, uh, is the composer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love here is that you picked the overture. I mean, I kind of miss the days when films used to open with an overture. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I don't know if if a lot of our listeners ever knew about that or, or had ever experienced it. But it was that was always the last film I saw. And I'm sure there have been others. But the last one I think I saw do it was, was The Black Hole. But there must be something since then. But I love the fact that you chose an overture. And I'm just kind of curious. El Cid an epic type of a film with the, what are some of the reasons why that made your list? You know, I have, I have a lot of, it's, I've going back as far as high school, because I made, I, that's like, I was known as the film guy in my grade, I guess they would, <laughs> they would always say to me, you know, are you going to, you know, what, are, what is, what's the, your list? What's your favorite movie? What's your five favorite 10 movies? What's your favorite? I, I don't, you know, I don't, my brain doesn't operate on that. I know that it's important to, you know, have an answer. If, if you're really put to the test by like a customs officer or something, <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, it's, uh, for me, I just have so many favorites for so many reasons. And, uh, and so in the case of Rosha, I just, Rosha is like a, to me, like a, uh, a genre unto himself, uh, mm. you know, in terms of his sound, uh, and by no means do I, I mean to, that does that mean to sort of belittle him? I feel the same way about Herman, uh, their voice uh, so distinctive that you really, um, you know, you really know when you're listening to them. Uh, now, in terms of El Cid, uh, you know, I've seen the film. It's not necessarily my my favorite film that Rocha scored, but but I I just really like uh, the overture from that film. I like a lot of stuff that again, it's very hard to pick. But uh, but the but in particular the Tadlow. 
did a re-recording of it, which I think is wonderful. Mm. Uh, and I'm not going to get nitpicky about it because I don't know enough about to compare it to the original score. A lot of people will get nitpicky on the message boards about that, but <laughs> uh, it's it still sounds pretty great. And and I uh, and it's just something I listen to a lot. I just like it. Yeah, and the Tadlow has been uh, amazing in some of the work they've done. I hope to get some King of the people of that organization on uh, on on at some point. Yeah, What's they're a, wonderful. Just wonderful. yeah, most of the re-recordings they've done, I have. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's truly amazing, and it's been you know, in some ways, the only way you were ever going to hear the music was the fact that they were able to reconstruct it and do it. So it's yeah, it's been a godsend. Well, let's uh, let's. This this is the overture from the film, and I'm trying to. Rosa's first name was Miklos. Miklos Rosa. Let's have a listen. Actually, her name is probably Miklos Rosa. I don't know. Rosa. Okay. Yeah. Well, forgive me if I've mispronounced it, but uh, I think you know who you were talking about. So let's uh, let's have a listen.
now I know you've you've had the role of of editor and director. Um, what kind of a role do those do those positions play in terms of uh, the score and you know maybe either choosing the composer or do do you choose like here I want music here but I want it quiet there if you can just kind of give me a generalization about the the role that an editor and or a director has when it comes to the film scores I'd be curious it depends enormously on who you're working with in both cases it depends on the era you're working in I it's hard to generalize but in my experience uh the uh the film I was making, one of the things that, uh, you know, mattered to me enormously was the creation of the score. And also conceptually, because I came up with the idea and co-wrote the script with a friend, was uh, very, very much based on a kind of silent film kind of concept uh, that was, um, you know, sort of where score was an important thing, where the score was the character in the film where sound was a character in the film. Mm. Um, I'm also not afraid of music. And I think a lot of people are afraid of music expressing emotion. Uh, It doesn't really bother me to have that happen. Obviously, it's a question of balance and what you have in mind, but I think it's important to be open to things like that. So as a director, that's that's what I was thinking uh, when, uh, when trying to, you know, conceive how I would deal with the music in the film. And the film is called Nocturne. It's about an insomniac who falls in love with a sleepwalker. Uh, <laughs> it isn't, it isn't a comedy per se. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a drama with lots of, of humor in it, but it's, uh, it's also a very visual film. And, uh, and because I think, you know, the best movies are a marriage of, of visuals and music to some degree. It's, uh, it's also a very musical film. So, mm. um, uh, Ryman Mirza is uh, the composer, uh, and he and I have gone back many years. I, I've been very lucky to have a lot of friends who are some of them very close who are just, you know, they're really great composers. So it was really, it was tough for me to, you know, you may not know the names, but it was tough for me to pick uh, from amongst them. No, so sure. I really, I really just cast, you know, um, you know, there's a person who I felt was best for this type of film and would be uh, and was capable of bringing out a certain heart and soul uh, that that the film needed and also intellectually was capable of of, of bringing out what I felt the film needed. So yeah. I think he did a wonderful job. And I mean, his score is available on Spotify and you can listen to it. And it's uh, it's the it place nicely as an album, too. Well, excellent. Yeah, I, I think composers ended up. If they don't, they need to develop a, a real thick skin because you you know your work gets rejected or you get passed over or or there's disagreements about what your vision was and and what you wanted to play and versus what the director wants. So it's you know I'm I'm, I'm sure while some of them were disappointed you didn't choose them, I, I suspect they've kind of been there before. So it's uh, everybody has though, right? Yeah. I mean, actors have everybody. Oh, yeah. if, you work, if you work in the, in in any form of entertainment. Or in uh, any of uh, the crafts, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sort of very reluctant to use the term art or artist, uh, even in, with in regard to the word artist is used a lot when it comes to, um, you know, pop music. Right. And uh, and I think that's just a, 
a marketing ploy. <laughs> I think yeah. everyone, we're all craftspeople. The art does not get decided by us. It gets decided uh, as to, to, if it's art, that's something that people think about and, you know, other people think about or should be. Uh, but uh, but you asked about, edit, in terms of an editor, how an editor deals with music. Well, today, because we have all this uh, digital technology, um, there is a great temptation to put temp score, scores from other films right. uh, in your cut uh, as you're working. Um, when I edit, I don't like to do my initial cuts with music at all. But the sale, so to speak, the pitch to the director or producers or executives who will see the film because they've been trained to hear scores, uh, music underneath it, they really don't know how to judge it. So they don't Not know bad. how to judge the film's tone. So you are forced uh, into a situation where you do that. And in a lot of cases, a director will pick that, pick either or point you towards certain cues and get more specific about other things. And if you're lucky to work with a director who knows something about music um, and, and if you're not lucky, you know, you'll get a director who will throw a whole bunch of pop songs at you and you'll go, you know what, I'm not sure this really means anything vis-a-vis -vis the film. <laughs> But if that's the if that's the that's the feeling you want behind it, uh, if that's the feeling, you know, then then that's something you you need to work with. In the case of um, of other directors, you know, they if they're more old Hollywood, perhaps you might end up they might have to end up saying, "That's great, I've done my cut. Uh, you know what we're trying to go for with the film. Why don't you work with the composer a bit?" or or why don't you? Or in some cases, having worked with the composer a lot, uh, you you get very involved in in shaping and 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 being the person who's responding to the cues, uh, or partially you get you get that input. So you end up having a great amount of uh, experience within that world anyway, and it's a very interesting uh, perspective to have because as an editor, the world isn't on your shoulders necessarily mm -hmm. uh, if it succeeds or fails. Uh, but uh, but you certainly have the ability to engage and and play a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you um moving on to the uh, the list that you had that you supplied. You know there are a lot of people, and again I have to say I'm a, I'm ashamed and say I haven't even seen or heard much of this, and I know I need to. Uh, you chose a film that some people some people like to say is perhaps the greatest score ever written. The film I'm talking about is Spartacus, and the composer is uh, Alex North. Uh, you know, this made your list, so I, I, I'm curious as to what was it that made it so special that you'd want to include it uh, to, in today's program. Uh, I just, I I love North's music because of what it does, the satisfaction it brings me uh, on levels that some other composers' work doesn't necessarily. Uh, you know, his, his ability to work in very complex ways um, in terms of orchestration, but just in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, what makes North North. I know that's kind of a cop out. I should be explaining it better, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it, you know, to me that Spartacus is, is a sort of zenith of that. It's not the only film that I would pull out, but, um, but in particular, there's a, a cue called the minds, which is one of the first, one of the first cues in the movie. And it's, it's just, you know, it is one of those cues where you sit there and you go, it takes you to a lot of different places in a very short period of time, wow. uh, musically and emotionally. And I love that about it. Well, that's a great lead into uh, playing this particular cue then. That's the one you chose was the mind. So 
Let's have a listen to this. This is from the film Spartacus, written by Alex North. career you uh, you happen to work with a a director that i admire because he uh, one of his films is one of my favorites um ipris file uh with composer john barry so i'm i'm really delighted that he at least uh, chose him for one of his projects but i'm curious since you did work with uh with fury what uh, any lessons or things that you uh, learned from uh, working with him that you think are, are interesting to know i've learned uh, i think was said it's the thing that, uh, you know, you learn because of his really vast experience. I mean, you, you, a lot of filmmakers, they don't necessarily, 
you know, a lot of people work, but you don't necessarily know all their films. Very few filmmakers do we sort of, a very small list can we sort of point out, oh, you know every one of their movies. Well, with Sid, you know a number of the films that he that he did. Boys and Company C is another one mm-hmm. that, that, that a lot of people respond to. Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross in the early 70s, another one. Um, the original, uh, The Appaloosa uh, with Brando. Um, I think... With Sid, you learn a lot because he has had so much experience. Um, and uh, at least when I when I came to him, which was uh, 1999, and uh, and he's very generous about it. And he also understands the concept of delegation. Uh, delegation is something that happens when you have creative people around you uh, and you hire them for a reason, uh, and uh, you don't micromanage them except in certain specific cases where you're trying to get across a point that otherwise can't be gotten across. But I, I think what I would learn from what I had learned from him certainly was the notion of delegating to to people, uh, of trusting people's intentions of, uh, just how to deal with performers, uh, how to deal with, um, you know, approaching, uh, some sequences, uh, and in terms of how to shape them, perhaps a bit, a bit more succinctly. I, you know, it's interesting because I, I, the the list of, of cues that you provided, you've hit a lot of the, a lot of the composers that I happen to have a great affinity for. One of them being uh, Ennio Morricone. Now, mm-hmm. my Italian really stinks, so I'm hoping that you can, can tell me what what film is this from? Uh, and you had a little interesting story about it, I think, as well. So, you you recall what the film was? Well, here's the thing. I've never seen the film, and that's that's another thing I I can get to in a moment about hearing music from yeah. movies never seen. But the but uh, but my Italian doesn't necessarily stink. I don't know Italian though, and 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 I once was asked to do an impression of Chewbacca uh, <laughs> on, on a show, and, and and I regretted it. So I won't <laughs> be pronouncing this. But I but but it's uh but it's uh it's I think from one of the comedies or that that he they did at some point and. Uh, okay. Spelled C R E S C E T E, and then the next word is an E, and the next word is M O L T I P L I C A T E V I, and I, I just I don't know what it is, but to me it's really it's a part of Morricone's work that I enjoy a lot. Where you just it's sort of like with Goldsmiths, you know the I think it was the filmmaker Peter Hyams who worked with Goldsmith a few times and said, you know, Jerry will fall out of bed and make an interesting sound. You know, and some, <laughs> some, some, some composers, some sound people are who are tuned into just have the ability to create interesting things or surround themselves with, with people who do. And Morricone in this case created what to me is one of his uh, more memorable, uh, you know, musically interesting things is by no means one of his more sweeping things, emotional things or, or, or even, you know, intense things. And he's done so much, but it's just, again, just a pick for me. It's just something that I, I think it just shows his range. Really cool yeah. Well, let's, that. let's go ahead and have a listen to this. It, um, this is from the vast catalog of Ennio Morricone, who I think might have the title of most film scores ever written by any one individual. Um, now I'll try it, but don't, don't laugh. Let's see. Crescite uh, a Montepulcetti. TV is, is <laughs> I think the name of the film. So, so everybody can have a good laugh. At, this time. <laughs> what's that? 
What's that? You'll get the Chewbacca Award this time. <laughs> but uh, but listen, the music's no laughing matter. Let's uh, let's have a great listen to this cue by Unio Morricone.
Do you, uh, there's a couple of schools of thought, and there's not actually one right and one wrong, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I remember my uh, my favorite composer is John Barry, and I can remember him talking a lot about sometimes trying to musically express what was going on with the character uh, as, as opposed to uh, scoring the action. Now, obviously, he scored the action a lot of times in, in his career, but but he was really more in tune with trying to, to connect with a character and express that musically. Do you have a feeling on that? Is it, uh, is, you know, yes, that's the way to do it. Or just kind of talk to me about your reactions when you hear that. Uh, it depends enormously on the subject matter, uh, you know, and, and the, and the intended tone of the movie and what you're doing. I mean, I, I love John Barry. He's another composer. Once again, I, I love so many, but I really like Barry. I've got everything. I think almost everything he's written. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, always been, uh, you know, his, again, his voice is very distinct and and very clear. And yes, there's a huge difference in the way he approaches something versus the way that Williams would approach it or Goldsmith or, 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 or more of kind of a, a traditional, more Hollywood school approach. I, I just I do, I do think it's very difficult uh, to say in a kind of general terms, this is a better approach than another approach, because it just sure. really depends on the movie and what the intended audience is like, you know, it. it um when I was thinking of uh, thinking about planning the music for 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 the, the feature that I did, Nocturne, it was about uh, I thought of David Shire, and I thought of his work for um, the Conversation, mm. uh, which is a very simple score. But um, you know, I, I I talked to David Shire when I did some interviews with him for Film Score Monthly. Uh, it may have been one interview actually. Uh, no, it was two, two. And, uh, and he used to call it, I think he used a term, something like brain music, or it was, it was a better term than that. The type mm. of music he was being asked to write in the 1970s, uh, vis-a-vis conversation, uh, all the president's men. Cerebral. Uh, was that maybe the word you were looking for? Or? No, it's not. Uh, it wasn't the okay. word he used. It wasn't the phrase he used, but yes, that's the idea. Cerebral okay. or something that, sh- that sort of, uh, uh indicates the synapses, kind of firing away <laughs> uh and and you know and he was he was sort of asked to bring that uh back uh for um uh zodiac which he did for david fincher which is why i was talking to him anyway that you know that's a that that i thought was an interesting type of music or or something that needed to be suggested in, in my film and so from the standpoint of, a, of creating something you think of something that is hopefully a character or something that is uh, in addition to uh, what you already have. Um, but if I were making a, an action picture uh, with a with a star, who or uh, maybe a semi star or mm-hmm. anything like that, I would be going for whatever you know his audience would want to hear or her audience would want to hear, which yeah. is depends enormously on where they're from and what the you know what era we're talking about. Um, like in this, in the eighties, you could have done orchestral, uh, but today I'm not so sure you would do orchestral. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like I, I've mentioned this on several programs to some of our guests. I don't know how you feel about it, but it, to me, it's almost these movies that have wall-to-wall music, they don't work for me. And it's a lot of times it's just bombastic music. Now I know some, some ways they're having to compete with sound effects and things like that, but I've almost gotten to the point where I'm, I think there's too much music sometimes in films. You feel the same way or differently? No, I do. I definitely too much music in films, but then a lot of, a lot of what's happening is a lot of, again, you going back to the insecurity issue that mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, crafts people have a lot of directors have or producers or other, any number of people insecurity manifests itself in so many ways um there are very few films or rather maybe you could say the spielberg films of uh, the escapist fantasy films tend to tend to get away with that a lot more uh and 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 in many ways are enhanced by that uh more music uh but there are other films where you're just going this stuff's lathered and I just don't need you to tell me what 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 to feel, but again, uh, it's about you know it's, it's about insecurity and it's also about audience and it's about communication and you know what they're what they're looking to communicate. Um, but yeah, I would say the more generally speaking, the more music, the less effective things are. That being said, today we have a big problem. I consider it to be a problem anyway. And yeah. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast will consider it to be a problem along with me, but not everyone does, uh, which is that what is music, you know, and what, it, what is music in a movie? And, you know, does the music that constitutes scoring today uh, necessarily, how far is it from sound design and how, and, you know, does it, it it's works so in conjunction with sound design that sometimes you don't, Sometimes it doesn't make a statement unto itself in a way, mm-hmm. um, but that's all based on you know this this rather cynical society we we live in, and coming out of uh, coming out of this uh, rather interesting and fairly unprecedented time that we're in right now with regard to being in lockdown, um, we're seeing some degree of kindness, uh, which I wonder if we'll see resurface in terms of what people want uh we've been in a period of at least in north america uh you know this sort of rash of sort of cynicism but also um not necessarily thinking things that are are, uh, things being in full color and i don't mean that just about actual color but in terms of uh, orchestral color or musical mm-hmm. color, any number mm-hmm. of acting styles, uh, writing styles. Uh, it's not, it's not necessarily been something that we've been able to have and feel maybe cool about, you know, okay. uh, for a long time. And, uh, and, and I wonder okay. coming out of this period, maybe we might feel differently, uh, in terms of self-expression in terms of artistic expression and whether it might be cool again, because ultimately whether I like to use that term, something's cool or something, and I don't think about it in terms of, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and worry about that, but, but that's basically when an executive is thinking when they want to yeah. something. And, and so you got to wonder why are things are, are the way they are now? Well, that's partly why I think, and yeah. they'll change. Yeah. You, uh, going back to your list, you, uh, chose another composer that I know a lot of people very, very strongly about who, uh, unfortunately we sadly lost a couple of years ago, 
The film is called Star Trek Three, and uh, the composer is James Horner. Now, tell me a little bit about your thinking in uh, including this on your list of favorites today. Well, I love James Horner, and for the reason that once again I was young when his when he first you know came on the scene, and it was it was Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan that I first heard, like so many people who heard the film and and mm-hmm. loved it. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, I'm not the world's greatest Horner fan. I don't love everything he's done. I I love a lot of what he's done. And I certainly think his voice was very distinctive and, and it's a real shame, uh, that he's not still with us. Um, one of the things about Star Trek three is to me, it forms the middle chapter of a kind of trilogy, unofficial trilogy of films. The first being Star Trek two. Uh, the second one being Star Trek Three, and the third one being Cocoon, mm. uh, because all pe- all of those three films are essentially films in which this very young composer and Horner was very young when he started. Uh, I think he was still in his twenties. Wow. Uh, you know, is writing about age, middle age, <laughs> old age, and and you know, and is making heroes of those characters for younger people for people of all ages, that sort of thing. It shouldn't matter that he is, but certainly in the, in the sort of, uh, you know, the broad stroke or the lexicon of eighties movies, uh, it's a kind of an odd thing, you know? I mean, I mean, I love, again, having been a Star Trek fan since I was literally four years old, uh, and see them go through this. I really quite, despite the, you know, ups and downs of the quality of some of the films, the original cast tended to, you know, convey an awful lot of heart, uh, and certainly the, you know, the writing and and the filmmaking did as well, and the music particularly. Got very lucky, uh, and so for me, Horner, uh, the cue from Star Trek Three that that is probably it's not the only cue, but it's the one that I love. It's called Returning to Vulcan, where oh. you know they, they've sacrificed so much, and now they're about to go into this kind of you know place where they have no idea if this whole thing that they've sacrificed everything so much is actually going to work and it's just a beautiful cue that we'll never see in a movie today because it's so uh it takes us time uh and it's such it's so reflective yeah well let's let's go ahead and have a listen to it i can't there's nothing i can add to it Uh, this is from star trek 3 the cue is called returning to vulcan and it's written by james horner
Okay, here's a here's a fun what if uh, game. If if you could have any composer, living or dead, uh, to score your movie, I'm curious who would it be and why. Uh, well, <laughs> um, I know that's a tough one. I know. Yeah. And you, uh, you know, if you can't name one, you know, try to narrow it down to two or three, maybe. I mean. Well, and I'm not just saying this, but I did say this earlier. It's really about casting, right? So, right. like, it's True. about, like, are they right? Is the movie right for them? Are they right for the movie? Um, are they right for the movie at this point in their career? Do they still like writings to maybe certain music? So, I mean, as an example, uh, as I mentioned earlier in regards to Nocturne, my film, I was actually spoke with David Shire about the idea of doing it. Uh, and he was interested in pursuing the conversation. And the only reason that I, you know, ultimately chose not to do it was I felt or not, is I didn't really want to waste his time because I didn't feel that initially I thought maybe I could raise the money uh, to, to, to use him. Not that he, you know, not that he would have charged exorbitant amounts of, uh, of money to do it, but just, uh, enough money to make it worth a worthwhile of some of somebody of that stature. Sure, sure. And um, uh, so David Shire is one who's who's scoring, I think, is varied and 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 really cool uh, and wonderful. And I mean, of course, you'd want to work with. I mean, I think you'd want to work with all your favorites. I know it sounds like a cop out answer. No, 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 no. I know it's a hard it question. It depends to... on the movie, right? Like John right. Barry. Like you know, you definitely want to use John Barry if you wanted his style of scoring. In your movie, and I'm not just talking about what everyone probably today who's not in film music thinks John Barry is, which is slow, melodic stuff that sounds like Dances with Wolves. Uh, you know, they're the other John Barry or the other John Barrys, yeah. which uh, where, you know, you go, well, this would be great if they, you know, you could sort of, you know, use him from another part of his career or a different I, I, I happen to think okay. some of the religious epics he did are like, you know, or uh, Last Valley. Uh, yeah, or Line and Winter are both, are, you know, like masterpieces. Yeah. Those are just amazing. So it's really hard to say, like, uh, okay. you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. I knew I knew it was a I knew it was a tough question. What um, what's in the pipeline for you? What's what's going to happen in uh, your near future? Or are there any current projects that we wanted to mention today for people to pay attention to? I would say that uh, this is a very difficult time for anybody who is working at all, let alone anyone who's working in the entertainment business. It's very hard to know what's going to come out of it. And I don't want to be crystal ball-y about it, but I, I do think that it's going to be a long time before we come out of this. Um, no. I, and I do think that, you know, because I, it's just my theory, it's very simple. It's it'll be the insurance companies who tell us when we're going to come out of this mm. uh, because all of our work uh, in the entertainment business is based on insurance. Uh, it's based on a certainty. And as we all know, there's only one way to be certain. Uh, so it's hard to know, but, uh, but personally, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Nocturne, the film I made several years ago, is still in release. Um, it was on Tribeca shortlists. Uh, it's all, all around the world on, uh, you know, in 50 countries and wow. tunes and everywhere. And you can get it there and you can get the soundtrack by Ryman Mirza on Spotify. Uh, I have two other projects, which I'm at the moment I'm writing, uh, I've been working on for about a year or so and, um, may end up being follow-ups to that film. Uh, but other than that, uh, I'm just enjoying this period. Uh, and, uh, you know, working on, uh, on television and other things. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, listen, I, uh, 
I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. I've had an absolutely great time listening to some fascinating observations that I haven't had a chance to hear from anyone else. So I, uh, my most sincere thanks to you for uh, for joining us today. I, I hope, hope you've enjoyed it. I have, and thank you so much, Frank, for the invite. I had a great time. No, my pleasure. It, um, before we wrap up for today, let me just remind our listeners, too, that um, we've just started a, a, a patron program on patreon.com. You can find out information on it from our Facebook page, but it's a way to support the program and, uh, as I say, leave a little tip in the tip jar if you're so inclined. So if you're enjoying today's show and others like it, we'd appreciate it if you'd uh, take it a look. Um, that's about wrapping up then for us. There's not much else to say except this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score? What's the Score?